I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Um, I I have to say I really I read your first book, Arrow of Sherwood, and yeah, and I, I really enjoyed that. Um, it, I stayed up far too late for about three nights in a row to finish it, so. Um, oh, I'm really glad. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, <laughs> thank you for writing it. Um, so now your new book jumps forward a couple of centuries to Henry VIII in 1509, and um, it's so great a prince, and it's about a year, you almost kind of do like a slice of life. Um, in 1509 and can you explain to me kind of 1509 is this crossroads for you it seems like can you explain how you came to that and, and why you picked that year yeah well obviously it's um it's a tudor book it's the book about the first year of um king henry VIII's reign and for me personally when i thought of the tudors initially i was kind of thinking of you know the, the shakespearean version of the Tudor era I think I had in my head Protestants and playwrights and printing and all of those sort of things and Henry's break from Rome and all of the changes mm-hmm. and what was really interesting as I was exploring 1509 was that actually lots of that is not there yet this is very much a still a medieval world mm-hmm. um, and yet when we're taught history in schools we're kind of told right 22nd of August, 1485, the Tudors come to the throne. That's the beginning of the modern age. That's the end of it. Um, and yet it wasn't like that at all. Still, the rituals of the year were based in religion. They were based in agriculture. There was so much about it that was sort of strange to me and kind of bewitching as a result of that. And because it's really clearly represented in the fact you go from uh, a very clearly medieval king into one who is sort of moving towards um, the early modern era and who is also a teenager at the time he comes to the throne. It was really intriguing to me to explore the country through the eyes of the king and also through his subjects. Right and you picked a couple of different people who kind of pop up from time to time in the book and is that um, how did you choose those people was it just because that's where the records were or kind of interesting stories or how did you decide? Who to, you know? <laughs> no I chose it kind of the other way around. Um, I specifically wanted in the book to look at as wide an array of people as possible. I wanted as many women as possible. I wanted as many working class or middle class, if possible, um, people to to follow their stories through. And also I wanted to go right from Cornwall in the Southwest to York in the North uh, and overseas as well. I mean, the book also covers uh, the new world, which was very new in 1509. So new, in fact, Henry sort of ignored it when he had a fancy dress party with 
all of the the people of the world represented. He only bothered with the three old continents. He didn't have any Americans. Um, so what I did is basically I, I went through as many records as I could in the time available. I looked at wills and at um, legal records, disputes between tenants and their lords to try and just sometimes literally just to try and get a name that I could pin some of this information on. So instead of saying, if you were a working class person, your house would look like Z, I could say, William Green's house would be like this. Thomasine Percival, who was a tailor, would be living like this. Um, and then, as you say, I try and follow those people through the course of the year. And in some, in some cases, there was a very strange sort of kismet with it because I decided that I would have 12 chapters around 12 kind of ritual points in the year. Um, and one of them would be All Souls and All Saints um, in early November, late October. Um, and that that would be focused on death and medicine. It was a really weird coincidence that one of the people I was interested in was a woman called Alice Middleton, whose husband was dying at exactly that point in the year in 1509. So I was able to, to completely say, well, this is what Alice might have been experiencing. This is how she might have seen a, seen a sick room and tended her husband. Uh, so I hope that that makes it a bit more immediate for people. Yeah, no, it definitely brings it a lot more to life and you see these actual, it's something about putting a name there and thinking about Alice or thinking about these people makes it definitely more real. Um, it's, it's interesting because what I like about your book too is that you have this sense of the kind of optimism that came with Henry and you know, the whole thing of what Thomas More said about this wonderful prince that was here and, and even the title of your book. And it's, it's so different from what you normally think of when you think of Henry. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that sense that people had of, of optimism and you know, how Henry kind of um, uh, made the most of that and, and embraced, embraced it. Yeah. Well, that was interesting as well, because I'll be honest, I'm not a huge fan of Henry VIII as a person or necessarily as a king. Um, and I've done a lot more kind of at the other end of this, the spectrum when you're looking at, you know, post 1536, all of the changes that have happened, the wives he's starting to kill, you know, all of those horrible things that happen later. And it was really interesting to go back and see someone who's just not fully formed yet. So when he takes the throne in 1509, Henry's 17, which is just, I mean, unimaginably young to suddenly have the responsibility of an entire kingdom. He gets married very quickly after coming to the throne. His wife, Catherine of Aragon, gets pregnant quite quickly afterwards as well, and then they lose that child. Uh, he has an agenda that he wants in terms of making a war with France. He kind of wants to revive the Hundred Years' War, which is frustrated. He wants to fight tournaments, and he's not allowed to do that. And it seemed like it, it sort of at every term in, at turn in that first year, Henry was learning to negotiate how to be king. And that was really interesting to me. And yet, like you say, he was, he was greeted with, I mean, just hysterical praise, really, because his father had become sort of so unpopular by the end of his life because of all of the financial shenanigans that were going on in Henry VII's mm -hmm. court. I think everyone just kind of went, ah, oh, something new, <laughs> and was, was delighted by it. And it helped that he was apparently very good looking. Right, not, not the one we think of later, the, the 1540s one at all. No, not at all. Like 17 years old, very tall, broad shouldered, fair haired, fair skinned, etc. The ideal really by 15th, 16th century standards.
Yeah, yeah. So you kind of take everyday life and, and fit different things within these different chapters. And I, I learned a lot about the educational system. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. And then something else that doesn't get quite as much attention was um, the medicine. You talked a bit about that too. And so I was wondering if we could just start with, with education. I was interested to see just how how much was available for everyday people? Like it's often something that I think only the nobles had access to teachers. And, and so it was interesting to see that regular people, if they could afford it, and even that there were some free places too, if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think that was surprising to me as well. I don't think I'd realized because I've spent a lot of time looking at the world of the elite. I've worked a lot at Hampton Court Palace, for instance. So when I've been discussing people's education it's tended to be oh well the rich would go and live in a household and they would learn this um, and it was fascinating to learn for instance that there was one tiny tiny <laughs> area in which people could get almost universal education which was for a couple of years like around the age of five to seven there was something called a petty school where you could go and you would it was also called a song school because you would go and learn to sing the um the psalms and the various hymns that you would use as a matter of sort of daily life religiously but you also might through that pick up a little bit of reading ability probably um in english or maybe just recognizing the odd letters uh, and then like you say there was some opportunity for people to go on from that into reading schools and grammar schools the trouble was for Tudor people at that time was you had to pay, either you had to pay a fee for all schooling after the age of seven, pretty much, uh, or if you were sponsored by a local guild, maybe a trade guild or your local city or a kindly local lady, <laughs> um, then you still had to find the money to sort of provide all your own materials. And I, I thought it was amazing that, for instance, um, a a, a labourer in this time, an entire day's wages would be necessary to pay for eight pieces of paper, which just goes to show how difficult it could be to get into education at times. Um, and therefore, for the people who achieved it and who, who maybe went on and were sponsored through grammar school to become priests or occasionally to become lawyers, um, you know, progressively there was more kind of of those London professions coming in that people really wanted to be educated that that was something that was kind of a burgeoning desire in the country at that time yeah and I thought it was interesting too how you talked about the importance of math even sometimes over reading to be able to manage your accounts and to and to manage everything like that too so I thought that was really a a kind of neat thing to think about these people having these kind of basic math skills yeah, and I think sometimes the abilities of people in the past, we tend to forget that just because they could, you know, work the land, it, it didn't mean that they had less knowledge than us. They had different knowledge. Mm -hmm. So as you say, accountancy skills could be hugely important for someone who is running a shop, whether a man or a woman, because both of them did that at this time, uh, or running a household indeed. Mm -hmm. uh, and also the degree to which people could read seems to have been slightly under exaggerated because they're in the Tudor period to be able to be to read to be literate meant you could read Latin and therefore that sort of skewed how we see things whereas actually we know from guild records that apprentices who were going into to learn a trade at the age of about 12 
um, a number of guilds said you must be able to read and write before you do this. So clearly, whether it's reading and writing in English, it was there at the time. Um, so it, people did know things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it wasn't just this collection of people collecting filth. And, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Moving yeah. dogs from one area to another. Exactly. So some people did that as a job too. Right. And that, that paid by the ton, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, that's very sensible. Yes, the product of your work is quite obvious to see if you've got a big pile of poo mm -hmm. as opposed to a small pile. Right. Exactly. Perfect. And it encourages you to get more poop there. So, yeah. Well done. Well done, then. <laughs> Can you explain to me some of the, what you see as the major changes between 1509 to then when we get to the 15, the early 1530s and, and the break? And obviously the the break was probably the biggest thing to, to bring all those about, but what other kinds of areas were changing maybe irrespective of, of that? Yeah, it's a bit difficult uh, to answer that because religion was so fundamental. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, which again was something I don't think I'd fully appreciated because without ever realizing it, I'd been brought up effectively sort of a state Protestant. Um, because that's the Church of England is still kind of in control of schooling in the UK um, to a to a much lesser degree, obviously, than it would have been in the past. But it's still there. So I, I hadn't appreciated the fact that before Henry broke from the Church of Rome, um, that the entire concept of the year was sort of determined by the, the days of religion, the high days and holidays, the days you could literally what you could eat on a given day was determined by uh, by those feasts. Um, and you even mentioned uh, in the chapter on um, marital relations, a person who her husband wasn't coming to her bed on certain days and things like that and because of the religion and so it dictated everything. Yes, and it was very prescriptive when it came to anything sexual, it must be said. The things you couldn't do were just absolutely legion in the Tudor yeah. period. Like essentially, if you weren't having sex in the missionary position with your spouse in order to have a child, then it was wrong. And you couldn't do it on fast days and on Sundays and during Lent and yeah. Yeah. some random Wednesdays. Like it's a very odd <laughs> sort of situation to have been in. Um, mm. And because of that, religion is like it's at the heart of, of everything for people. Like I said, it was the beginning of the language of learning as well. You learnt in, in Latin, your Psalms were in Latin. Um, so it was it was just fundamental and people who were working in monasteries or in convents were not divorced from the rest of society they were it was still people's brothers sisters aunts uncles there were people being educated in monasteries and convents uh, there were people receiving alms so charity from them there was a huge social support structure there that was swept away uh, as a result of the dissolution of the monasteries and I think it had it was a huge impact on the country and you can see that in the fact that it leads to so much social unrest that like in 1536 to 7 um there's the pilgrimage of grace in which almost a third of the country uh in terms of landmass is involved in this in this big rising against the king's religious changes so it, it breeds a lot of uncertainty as well i think politically dom domestically and then internationally because it causes all sorts of problems in international relations 
Right. Sure. Of course. Um, it was interesting because you talked also just now, you mentioned the social safety net that the monasteries provided, but I thought it was interesting too, in your book, you talked about the guilds and what each, and they weren't always necessarily related to religion. Some of them could be, but they were professional guilds too, and what, how they would look after people. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I found that really ooh, wobbling the table. Um, I found it really heartening to read about the guilds because it was, it was a complete community really in existence that was designed to support each other. They called each other brothers and sisters. They were called fraternities, these guilds. Um, and they were created expressly to help people. I mean, they're almost a form of early union, some of them. They were created expressly to help people in times when perhaps they didn't have work or they were injured so they couldn't work. Uh, so exactly as you say, there's a safety net there. If um, a spurrier, for sake of argument, someone who made the spurs um, for, for knight's shoes, or a pin maker, if they found themselves in a difficult position financially, then they knew that themselves and their family would be supported for mm -hmm. a while, which is really, it's not something I would have associated with that era of history. I kind of assumed that that, that collective assistance was, was very much a, a sort of a later, maybe even 19th century um, mm -hmm. situation. Yeah, it was really interesting when you talked about there were certain prescribed amounts that if somebody was sick, they were given X amount and that was just that was just there and they didn't even have to kind of question that. It's really, yeah, it's not something that you necessarily think of from something that wasn't a religious institution. Yeah. yeah. So the guilds also, for everyday people, not nobility, the guilds for for that class of people dictated so much of their life as well in terms of the the apprenticeships and what you could do and the marriage age and that's something too you often they go back then they got married when they were 12 but that was only the the noble people getting married when they were that young for the average people they got married in their mid-20s and can you talk a little bit about why and and how how that would have worked hmm. I think the Tudors were much more sensible than we sometimes uh, imagine. So while it did happen occasionally that you would get babies getting married or six-year-olds getting married, um, it was far more common for most of the population to get married when you had a kind of financial um, uh, security. So often that meant that a husband would have set himself up in trade. Perhaps it meant that the wife had spent some time in domestic service or herself being apprenticed perhaps as a silk woman or doing brewing something like that um, and it took a while to do that so an apprenticeship was about seven years uh, the earliest probably you'd finish is when you're about 21 during that time you can't get married you can't set up your own industry you can't leave either which could be a bit of a problem if you were being mistreated in any way by your master and some of the people I found were instances of people unfortunately who end up in the legal record because they are suing their master because he's imprisoned them falsely mm -hmm. um, which is unusual obviously mostly it seems to have been a more positive experience um, but yeah so therefore it, it took until maybe your early 20s uh, early to mid 20s to actually reach the point where you you could get married and then what I loved was the fact that in order to get married you didn't need you know an expensive cake or an expensive dress or anything you could literally all you needed to do was both of you said I want to marry you I freely do this in front of someone else and then you had sex and that was it so there's an instance of someone in 15th century Yorkshire getting married while milking a cow you know you you, you could just be doing something else and then you you went away and you were married sorted 
Yeah. Yeah. But that would also then, so you talked about some of the issues that would come up sometimes if somebody promised marriage, you talk about Edward IV, then if somebody promised marriage and, and it didn't actually, they said, oh, no, 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 I, I didn't actually marry them. Can you talk about how that might have happened sometimes? Yeah, well, I certainly had heard previously the kind of the stories of Charles Brandon, who was one of Henry VIII's very good friends, who was infamous for this. His marital history is an absolute horror show, really. Um, and he he's a very good example to give, because what he did is um, he was married to someone uh, who I think even got pregnant with his child. Mm -hmm. And then he ended that marriage and married that lady's aunt, took all of her money. Uh, ended the second marriage, went back to the first wife, uh, and who died eventually, and then secretly, illicitly married Henry VIII's sister. Mm -hmm. So you can see that sometimes, if you're sort of, all, if all you need is just to give consent in a room and then have sex, that sometimes that could lead to problems. And again, there's legal cases where a woman is saying, "We are definitely married, me and this this other man, because uh, he said we were married, and then and then we went to bed." And he's saying, "No, no, no, I said I would marry her." And then we went to bed. You know, it was a completely separate thing. Uh -huh. So you get some mothers in particular who become very sort of cautious about this situation and refuse to let uh, men and women spend time alone and refuse to let anything happen, you know, any shenanigans, until it is definitely set in stone and publicly declared that the couple are married, which is very sensible under the circumstances. Right, yeah. And then you talk also about like, that's why they often would get married on the front porch and then go inside for their blessing so that it was all public at the time. Yes. Yeah. And I thought it was really lovely that you had um, servants, for instance, who live within households would get married uh, with their master or mistress present. And then they might have some sort of feast in the great hall of the home that they were working within. Um, so it's very important. Yeah. Like you say, to have a kind of public show, uh, even if it was just something as little as that people saw you walking through the street. And that uh, kind of oral history element to the period I found really intriguing as well. The fact that uh, proof of age, for instance, when someone was saying, I'm definitely old enough to inherit my land, the way that the courts would assess if they were telling the truth is they would ask the people who had been there at the baptism or even at the childbirth. So you get these instances of midwives 20 years after the fact saying, oh yes, I was definitely there. I helped his mother and then I carried the candle for him. Um, so it's, it's literally people's memories being written down. Yeah, yeah, that's really beautiful. It's really neat. Um, I, I was interested also, I guess, in kind of what you, what you, you said you included a lot of women's stories. And I thought that was really cool too, to see the role that women played here. Because often you tend to think that the women were just at home making babies and they really weren't. They had a very vibrant experience um, and had lots of different job opportunities, either inheriting a business from their husband or doing their own, like you said, brewers. Can you talk a little bit about the role of women in everyday life? I made a particular decision that uh, if I had a man and a woman who could kind of fill the same little area in the story, that I would use a woman. So for instance, I chose Alice Middleton, who's, who I mentioned earlier, whose husband died in November 1509. Um, I chose her to follow specifically because then I could be looking at someone who was running a household, who was educating her children. Um, but she wasn't my absolute favourite example of this. I think the absolute best example from this period is a woman called Thomasine Bonaventure, 
who went from being a Cornish servant to a uh, tailor effectively with her own apprentices, with her own people living in, in her home in London with um, a blue velvet saddle on her horse, which we know from uh, her, her will. Um, and she's an example of how, although effectively uh, she married in order to gain a position, she married a tailor of London three times, three different tailors, uh, she became, um, because she inherited those tailors' uh, estates and apprentices, she became, she became the person who was sort of giving her next husband authority within, within the city, maybe even within the guild, perhaps. She sort of represents to me the fact that without the kind of the tiny little snippets of information that sometimes documents bring up, it's, it, it's very easy to imagine that women literally just sat around sewing or cooking and did nothing else. Not that those are, you know, poor things to be doing. Um, but there was a, a huge range of, of tasks that women took on and particularly women effectively like Thomasin, like Alice, they were silent partners in a family business. And the trouble is that they were silent partners. So they were supporting behind the scenes. Their names are not on guild indentures or uh, other documentation. So often we can't, it's very difficult to get a handle on it. And it's only when you have a second document that specifically names those women that you can say, yes, they were definitely involved. And there was another case of um, a late 15th century uh, person within a, a trade in London who wanted to hand on his estate and his business to his son. And it, I think it goes on for seven years. Seven years of different documents are produced. And it's only the very last one in which it's referenced that both of their wives are also running these businesses with them. And like, if it weren't for that one last document, you'd have no idea that the women were also involved. And there must be so many cases where we don't have that last document, that last piece of the puzzle. But the women were, uh, as well as running households, they were also running businesses with their other halves. Yeah. Can I ask you a question that I don't think you really addressed in the book, and it's just something that popped up for me. How much, so you think about the women who also had this outside the home kind of work and tasks, how much inside the home would men do? And I would think, like, we often have it, the whole idea that women are taking care of both the home and out doing the work and double duty kind of thing. But surely with the amount of women that died in childbirth and the... Uh, things like that, men would have more of a, a say inside the home too than we might normally imagine, I don't know. Yeah, it's really difficult to answer. Essentially, things behind closed doors are, are concealed <laughs> from us. Uh, so it's hard to know, but we can, we can assume, I think, that if a woman uh, is going to have a child, that probably in the period where she retreats from the world in order to have that child and is supported by female relatives or neighbors or the local midwife, that someone is going to be taking up the slack in her own household and it isn't necessarily going to be a daughter. It could equally be a husband who is going to be helping out. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, yeah, that's a really interesting question. And we certainly men take an interest in children. There's lots of instances of uh, husbands and wives working, sort of working together to arrange marriages um which is something that clearly shows an interest in their child's future or arranging apprenticeships for them there's even one instance of uh an apprentice who had been mistreated by his master had been imprisoned ultimately because he was falsely accused by his master and his father spends certainly months maybe even years trying to get his son just to have his case heard in court mm -hmm. uh, so 
you know, there's that that parental element to men's lives maybe is is sometimes neglected. The, the kind of the care that they would have is is seen as being a maternal thing, but actually it was it was both parents were concerned for their children. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So, um, what what kind of was the biggest surprise to you when you started researching this book and putting everything together? What kind of surprised you the most about what you were learning from this period from this year? <laughs> there were so many surprises. Um, I think the degree of diverse experience, which I really wanted to find, and occasionally it was hard to find, but I felt like I, I it was there. That was wonderful to me that you could find evidence of, of working class people and sort of follow them through sometimes sometimes literally years of their lives um, and also uh, similarly that you could you could find evidence of uh, people who had journeyed from foreign countries to live in in this country at the time that the entire world was sort of expanding outward like I found that completely fascinating because it's an area I hadn't really looked at before uh, that, yeah. that movement of people and it turned out to be very personal because the, the time I was researching the book was sort of and then when it came out was the time when there was the debate about uh, the EU referendum in the UK and the place of migrants within society mm-hmm. so it, those those things ended up quite overlapping really yeah it's interesting because there was that um video of who is it Ian McCull- McCullen doing the um Thomas More speech from the Shakespeare about the evil May Day riots. And that came out just as all the Syrian refugee stuff was kind of going on. And it, it made me think too, that was something else I had written down here that I wanted to ask you about. If you can talk about the, the multiculturalism of London and the way people got, and not just London, all over, all over England, uh, there were people coming from different countries and even um, even black people and Moors and people that we don't always assume to have been there. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, yeah, like you say, it wasn't just London. That was really interesting to me. So the fact that there was evidence of um, a couple of Dutch printers who were living in York, one of whom was enfranchised. So he was actually part of the city community. He was a free man of the city. He was a Dutch printer called Frederick Fries. Mm-hmm. And his wife as well was also a member of um, a local a local religious guild. Uh, and then down, right down in the south coast, you've got Southampton, where there's evidence for Venetian galleys and Genoese ships coming into port, like out just outpourings of Italian mariners, sometimes even a thousand potentially of them into one port town, of which there would be a number of people of African origin as well. Uh, we know this because there's an instance in the 1490s of, um, he's described in the Southampton Book of Finds as just a black man, that's mm-hmm. all, uh, who is also a musician. From one of the Italian ships. Uh, so the, the fact that you would have what we imagine, I think, and what is presented a lot of the time as being a very white, English, uh, often male <laughs> mm-hmm. society actually had uh, immense diversity in it. Uh, and one of my, my, the people who most intrigued me, I think, was someone called Catalina of Matril, who was part of Catherine of Aragon's household. So she came with Catherine in 1501 when Catherine married Prince Arthur. Henry's old brother. And uh, she was part of this huge entourage of people from all over Spain. And at that point in history, Spain had recently retaken control of 
as, as they saw it, of Granada, right down in the south, which for hundreds of years had been an independent Muslim territory. Um, and Catalina was probably a, a Muslim who had converted to Christianity. She was probably a Moor, so she was probably black. Um, and the fact that she was there and she was probably seen by Thomas More, who describes the arrival of, of Catherine and describes seeing um, black members of the entourage, that she was there at the same time as Henry. And she perhaps knew things that even Henry didn't because she looked after Catherine of Aragon's bed linen. She looked after the secret affairs of the Queen's chamber. That was just fascinating to me. So it's, it's not at all the case that this was a period in which um, all relations between English people and, uh, and people from foreign countries were, were problematic or challenging, although there was that as well at times. <laughs> the English could be quite insular. Uh, but just the knowledge that English culture has been enriched by peoples from all over the world for, for so long uh, was really heartening to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was really that was really interesting to, to read about that. Um, I'm trying to see what other questions I have here. Um, oh, we talked about the medicine. We didn't really say, I didn't really ask you that much about medicine yet. So if you could maybe talk chat a little bit, it's something you don't really hear about. Um, you hear about bloodletting and leeches and kind of like that and humors. But if you could chat a little bit about um, what an average person would have experienced if they got sick and what the kind of medical knowledge was for the average people, that would be great. Yeah, Tudor medicine was based on something called humoral theory, which was centuries and centuries old, and in fact continues for centuries and centuries afterwards, in which they believed that the human body was made up of uh, four humors, um, in the same way that, you know, the, there are four elements. So it was kind of the human body was always linked to the wider world, the wider nature, perhaps. Uh, and if those humors got in, out of alignment, then that was when you got sick. So that's where bloodletting comes in. If you've got too much of that humor of blood, then you need to let it in order to get well. Um, there's actually, you know, there's a, a reasonable degree of logic to all of this. It, it, it makes sense to, to have that kind of idea that you're always equalizing things. And some of the advice that's given in the Tudor period is actually quite commonsensical. So sometimes to restore your humors, it's enough simply to have a bath or to go for a walk, or to have what's sometimes called honest mirth and company. So uh, you just have conversations with people. Uh, that's why, incidentally, Henry VIII, throughout this period, actually, even as a, a prince, he had fools in his household. Um, people who were expressly there to speak honestly to him, to entertain him, uh, to kind of while away the hours with him. The trouble was, though, that, of course, this is an era in which, if you have an epidemic, the best advice you are given even by books at the time and presumably by word of mouth as well, was run away. Mm. <laughs> and it was just not possible for most people to run away if they didn't have a, an estate on the other side of the country that they could run to. Um, and what was quite alarming to people at that time was there were a couple of new to them sicknesses that had developed, one of which was syphilis, uh, which sort of arrived in the 1490s and one of which is something called sweating sickness which was completely horrifying and this first appears in 1485 at the time Henry VII comes to the throne so it's not a great beginning to the Tudor period mm. it must be said um, and in that first outbreak uh, one report says 15,000 people died in London alone and what was horrifying was you would be perfectly well you'd be walking down the street you'd fall over and within hours you were dead 
So it, it was a completely terrifying sickness. And all you could really do was if you couldn't flee it and you had to look after members of your family who were unwell, the advice would be maybe to use vinegar to wash your hands and your face, perhaps because miasmas, you know, corrupt air was believed to be a big part of Tudor medicine as well. Maybe have some sort of compress over your nose to keep the bad smells out, to put rose water down, to have fires burning all the time. Um, and often, of course, those things didn't really work. So it, it, it made sense to me why Henry VIII was quite such a hypochondriac mm -hmm. as he was um, when, you, when that is the situation. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, definitely. It would be terrifying to have something like that, that you're fine and then you're not. So, mm. yeah. Um, interesting. So I want to give you a chance to then talk more about your book and where people can get your book and find out more about you and, and all your work too. Because I, I think, was there any, is there anything else you'd like to pop in here that I haven't asked? Any other no, story? no, I don't think so. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so where can people learn more about you and your work and, uh, and buy your books? Uh, well, my website is uh, lauren-johnson.com. Um, I also have a blog, which is Lauren Johnson One uh, at WordPress. And uh, my book is uh, So Greater Prince England and the Accession of Henry VIII. And it's sold either by Pegasus in the uh, US or Head of Zeus in the UK. And also, I uh, have a new book that will be out in March 2019 called The Shadow King, which is all about King Henry VI. It's a biography of, um, of him. So the medical matters have all come back to the fore because Henry VI is remembered as being a mad king. He's the king who lost the Hundred Years' War, whose reign saw the beginning of the Wars of the Roses. So it's, it's been a really interesting sort of step back in time to discover yeah. more about him. So can you tell me anything about what his, it, what's your theory on what his sickness was? Or do we have to wait for the book to find that out? Um, I will say that I do not believe, as some people have said, that he was schizophrenic. I, I do not believe he was always mad and that that made him a, a, a poor king. I think his, he was a, a really nice man, not a great king. And um, his experiences were, were stressful enough essentially that um that it led to slightly complex mental health uh situations but i i completely think he he could have recovered mm. um and he didn't because of the events of the wars of the roses gotcha so we will stay mm. tuned for that yes yeah awesome perfect well i i thank you so much for being here and thank you for sharing your knowledge and your research and everybody should go buy your book now because it's really good. Yes, definitely do that. <laughs> Perfect. Awesome. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.